DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, employees were called to the offices inside the power plant. They were questioned by Rosatom representatives together with the representatives of FSB. Since then, they went missing or they were confined and that's when tortures began. Zaporizhia, how a nuclear power plant was turned into a torture chamber. And Lampedusa. Islanders find themselves on the front lines of Europe's border crisis. Those stories plus closing time. What will it take to save the British pub? Stay tuned to find out. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed the UN General Assembly in New York. His speech didn't so much focus on Russian weapons as on Russian weaponization of civilian infrastructure. Many times the world has witnessed Russia using energy as a weapon. Kremlin weaponized oil and gas to weaken the leaders of other countries when they came to the Red Square. And now, now the threat is even greater. Russia is weaponizing nuclear energy. Not only, it is, not only it is spreading its unreliable nuclear power plant construction technologies, but it is also turning other countries' power plants into real dirty bombs. Look, please, what Russia did to our Zaporizhia power plant. Shelled it, occupied it, and now blackmails others with radiation leaks. Is there any sense to reduce nuclear weapons when Russia is weaponizing nuclear power plants? Scary question. Darker still, this week the Ukrainian investigative non-profit organization Truthhounds released a report on Zaporizhia titled A Nuclear Prison, How Rosatom Turned Europe's Biggest Nuclear Power Plant into a Torture Chamber and How the World Can Stop This. The report documents how, beginning in March 2022, Russian occupying forces set up a systematic campaign of abductions, torture and inhumane treatment of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant workers, all with the knowledge and even collaboration of Rostatom, Russia's state-owned nuclear power corporation. I'm joined on the line now by Demetro Koval, Truthhound's legal director. Demetro, perhaps you could set out the report's findings for us. So early in March 2022, the Parisia nuclear power plant became attacked by uh, the invading uh, Russian forces. A couple of uh, strikes uh, targeted uh, the premises of the power plant. And uh, later in March, uh, approximately 10th, 11th of March, the station got under the control of the Russian forces. Since then, Russian forces started to 
um, impose their own rules and procedures on the Parisian power plant. For instance, the um, access uh, to the power plant was changed by these forces. And of course, uh, since this object is very uh, complicated to operate, to um, work with, uh, Russian military and also security forces brought experts from Rosatom, the only Russian agency uh, equipped uh, to operate uh, nuclear power plants uh, to the station. Uh, then uh, Rosatom adopted the uh, necessary secondary legislation that allowed it to legally establish control legally from the Russian uh, standpoint, of course, establish the control over the station. And since then, uh, it's kind of officially recognized by Rosatom itself that they have a control uh, and responsibility duties to uh, go through all the nuclear procedures on the station. And in terms of the experiences of the workers themselves, the Ukrainian workers um, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, what have they been subjected to? Uh, we heard uh, and we read uh, from the media that uh, uh, there were numerous reports of pressure uh, put on uh, Ukrainian employees of the nuclear power plant. Uh, that's why we uh, decided that uh, we need to investigate those uh, uh, stories. That's uh, when we started walking with survivors and we spoke to 14 and we from these 14 heard the stories of 30. So we know uh, we identified 30 people who uh, went through uh, tortures or inhumane treatment. So um, they uh, shared with us their stories uh, that basically left no doubt that it was the policy on the station to systematically use torture or inhumane treatment against Ukrainian employees of the station. Uh, quite often, employees were called to uh, the offices in uh, inside the uh, power plant. They were questioned by Rosatom representatives together with the representatives of FSB. And since then, they went missing or they were confined by FSB. And that's when uh, tortures began. So uh, we know that many stories of tortures really started uh, on the power plant with a complete knowledge of that fact uh, from the Rosatom side. Uh, then they were brought to uh, other locations in the city, in Enerhodar, uh, where they were mixed with uh, local uh, population, uh, with other um, detained um, citizens of Anargadar, and then they were tortured on, the, in that place, on those places. As from time to time, they were indeed brought to some forests where they had to uh, deal with mock executions, so with uh, these demands to dig graves for themselves, etc. Uh, but most of the tortures still happened in the locations to which uh, these employees were brought from the power plant or from their homes. And what form did the torture take? 
I mentioned already is uh, mock executions and demands to, to the graves. There were also beating, the use of water, uh, waterboarding. Then uh, we also found a couple of really signature techniques uh, used almost exclusively by the Russian forces. They use so-called tapik, which is the kind of military form connected to the bodies of our survivors and uh, Russian uh, force used uh, this electricity to basically torture and keep in pain uh, the uh, survivors. Apart from that, uh, the plastic bags were used. So they were put on the heads of uh, the survivors. And from time to time to these uh, plastic bags, uh, Russians uh, added some diesel fuel. Some of them are really signature techniques uh, that are very widely used by the Russian forces all over Ukraine, but not only on, uh, all over Ukraine. That's also one of the points that maybe is not that explicitly mentioned in our report, but that we always mentioned during uh, interviews that Russians are using similar techniques in other countries where either are present right now or where they were present. Uh, Georgia is one of the examples, Chechnya, the territory of now Russian Federation. And then in Africa, there are uh, some reports of uh, these so-called private military companies that were very much associated and affiliated with the Russian state, used similar techniques to torture local population. So it's not only about Ukraine, it's rather about the continuous or repeating behavior of the Russian agents all over the world. The title of uh, Truthhound's report is In a Nuclear Prison, How Rostatum Turned Europe's Biggest Nuclear Power Plant into a Torture Chamber and How the World Can Stop This. I wanted to come to that last question. What can be done? Uh, we identified at least a couple of areas, three areas uh, to be uh, precise, uh, where the world can step in. The first would be to use sanctions against uh, Rostatum uh, or some of the companies that uh, are included into the Rostatum holding. Then the use of universal jurisdiction to investigate and maybe indict by its possible Rosatom agents. Another would be to stop uh, doing business uh, with Rosatom, sorry. And uh, that's uh, the demand that is based on the doctrine of business and human rights. Last but not least, there is uh, International Atomic uh, Agency that supervises the situation on the atomic power plant. And uh, this agency should take a closer look because uh, the human error may cause as significant damage to the station as the attack uh, by artillery or other weapons. So because you're drawing a direct link there between the safety and well-being of the nuclear power plant workers and the risk of a nuclear accident, in effect, the safety and well-being of those workers is inextricably tied to the safety and well-being of everyone else in Ukraine and indeed Europe. Exactly. Yes, that's what we're trying to say. Dmitry Koval is legal director of the Ukrainian investigative non-profit organization Truth Hounds. To read the full report, go to www.truth-hounds.org. The EU's Border Patrol agency Frontex announced on Wednesday that it would boost support to Italy following last week's wave of migrant arrivals on the island of Lampedusa. 
Some 10,000 migrants arrived on the island in just one week, overwhelming the island's small migrant centre and prompting the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to pay Lampedusa an emergency visit in the company of Italy's hard-right Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni. Whilst there, von der Leyen set out a 10-point action plan – But, as Megan Williams reports from Rome, Lampedusans and migrants alike seem to see little hope of help. Lampedusa is losing patience. For more than a decade, the Italian island, a speck of land so far south in the Mediterranean that's closer to Africa than Italy, has kept its port open. Welcoming in battered boats crammed with exhausted human cargo, people risking the dangerous crossing for a new life here in Europe. But recently, hundreds of islanders stood on the pier as a ferry sailed in. They were there to block tents for migrants from being offloaded, saying that would be the start of a government plan to turn their island into an open-air migrant prison. We don't want to become lesbos, said one woman, referring to the Greek island with refugee camps. Their fears were in part triggered by this video message posted by Italian Prime Minister Maloney. In it, the far-right leader said her government would usher in a paradigm shift on the migrant issue. She called for an EU naval blockade of North Africa to stop migrant boats from leaving and promised to set up migrant detention centres where those who don't qualify to seek asylum will be held for longer, she says, before they're expelled. Maloney was elected last year on a hardline stance against boat arrivals and a promise to stop them. Since then, the number of arrivals has doubled, 130,000 this year alone. Most of the votes are coming to Lampedusa. The island, though, has just one small migrant hotspot, a fenced-in area at the end of a dusty road, equipped for 400. So migrants, teenage boys, mums with babies, have been forced to sleep on cots and on the ground along the road leading away from the centre. Local restaurants in the church gave the people small dishes of pasta, bread and water. Amadou from Gambia said he wasn't able to get food in the migrant centre, so he came to town. When you go to the land where they used to give food, sometimes it's a big deal. Puss and pool, you know, it's not easy at all. So some of us, to have it is a big problem. So that's why we used to go inside the town too. He said the boat journey was rough. We were in the sea for almost 30 hours. It was terrible. Thanks to God to the Almighty and our captain who helped us until we ran up to here. This young teenager from Guinea said it took three days in a crowded boat to make it to Lampedusa. My dream, my passion is to play soccer, he says, to become a soccer star. But his future and that of thousands arriving in Lampedusa, then shipped to Sicily and mainland Italy, is more and more unsure. So is the future of the young Tunisians crossing over, escaping a country socially and economically on the brink. In the meantime, the residents of Lampedusa, too, feel like, without more government help, they're on the brink. We, Lampedusans, need to safeguard our island, said this man. 
to make sure the people rescued at sea are taken to other spots in Italy. This will reduce their suffering, their long days at sea, and reduce the psychological and humanitarian burden, too. How that will happen, though, is unclear. Italy continues to hobble the migrant rescue boats who take people to Sicily, tying them up in red tape, limiting the number of rescues they can do. And Europe has shut down its naval patrol mission that would save people. Maloney and other far-right politicians insisted those ships were a pull factor, attracting people to risk the crossing. Now Maloney wants the ships back, not to save people, but to block boats. European Commission President von der Leyen stopped short of endorsing a naval blockade, but seemed to come the closest she has to adopting the language of Italy's far right. And I want to be very clear. We have an obligation as part of the international community. We have fulfilled it in the past and we will do so today and in the future. But we will decide who comes to the European Union and under what circumstances, and not the smugglers and traffickers. But without a real plan and more legal ways for people to come to Europe, the crisis in Lampedusa will continue. Megan Williams, DW, Rome. DW is part of the Info Migrants Media Network, providing migrants to Europe with information at every step of their journey. To find out more, go to infomigrants.net. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now, a friend of mine once joked that in the village where we grew up, there were two sets of people. There were those who went to church, my parents, and there were those who went to the pub, hers. She was not wrong because for generations, the local pub has been a fixed staple of Britain's rural landscape and culture. Now, though, those pubs are disappearing fast. Nearly 400 pubs called their final last orders in England and Wales in the first half of 2023. That's a rate of about two a day, and it's almost as many as during the whole of 2022 combined. So what is going on and can anything be done to stop it? Dan Ashby has been, well, down the pub investigating. Sometimes it seems like pubs have been around since the beginning of time. And the clink of glasses and pouring of a pint are the perennial backdrop to British life. But something seems to have changed. Number 10, Downing Street, the perfect Airbnb short stay. <laughs> Agler's Corner in Sheffield is an example of a new breed of independent, community-minded pub. There's pop-up local food stores in a boozy courtyard and events like tonight's Abdul the Bipolar Drag Queen's Pub Bingo. Well, first of all, what, what is pub bingo? Drag bingo. Drag bingo. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Drag the bingo. The, pub. the emphasis is on me. Thank you very much. I mean, I guess a global audience listening to this will think of an old, smoky, you know, Royal Navy posters on the wall place. And you, you couldn't really be further from it with Hagler's Corner. 
No, as much as I would love an old smoky place that's navy, that sounds fantastic to me. It's, it doesn't matter what the walls and the floors look like. It's about the people that come in. It's about the people that run it, that own it. It's about community. It's this kind of innovation in pub events that helps keep hagglers going, as owner Sarah Ingolfstotter tells me. Our business model is designed in order to feed into each other. Just the communal space in, of a courtyard is quite a magical thing. Just having a, a, you know, a, an open courtyard, it's a bit like a hug. And yet, even for a pub like this, in times like these, there are challenges at every corner. The cost of uh, purchasing has gone up so dramatically uh, and it's very hard to pass all that on to the customer. You just, it's, just, it's just not feasible, really. New data from the property group Altus has revealed that nearly 400 pubs went bust in the UK in the last six months alone. That would mean pubs are closing at nearly twice the rate they were last year. Greg Mulholland was an MP who set up a parliamentary Save the Pub group. He says that too many pubs are being bought out by property developers. We are losing genuinely profitable pubs simply because um, unscrupulous owners and developers are buying them knowing that they can uh, make a killing by closing the pub, destroying the community asset and redeveloping the site. And unless that's stopped, we will see more and more pubs simply asset stripped by faceless um, greedy owners and operators. And we'll be losing you know, so much of our cultural identity. In truth, pubs face a cocktail of challenges. The cost of living crisis has pushed their energy bills up and kept many customers away. But campaigners say that big businesses are also running countless pubs into the ground or just selling them off. Changes to the law or an improvement in the economy would likely help, but there are bigger, more fundamental forces at play too. We may feel nostalgic as a society for jukeboxes and pool tables, but are we actually falling out of love with the pub? Over the last 20 years, various charities estimate that alcohol consumption has fallen by just over 15%. That doesn't necessarily mean we're boycotting pubs. But compared to decades ago, pubs now face competition from everything from computer games to gyms. Christopher Snowden is a lifestyle economics expert from the Institute for Economic Affairs. Things have been bad for pubs for a very long time. They face all sorts of competition. People's homes are nicer. I mean, that's one basic thing that's changed for de- you know, over decades. Since the 1930s, this has been going on. People's homes are warmer. They've got more to do in them. They've got lots of you know, Netflix and, and Prime and all sorts of things they can watch. There's a lot more competition for people's um, social time. Um, but yes, you're right. Eventually, unless the pub dies completely, we will reach uh, an equilibrium. It's unlikely that pubs will disappear altogether, but if the politics and economics of pubbing doesn't improve, they might become less of an institution in every village and town. And some pubs will be ringing that bell for last orders for a final time. Dan Ashby, DW, in the UK. Beer, as it happens, is one of my specialist subjects, which will explain the following. (laughs) 
Yeah, after that report, I could not resist the opportunity to ask you this question. Which European country has the highest beer consumption per capita in the world? Is it Belgium, Czech Republic or Czechia, Germany or Ireland? If you think you know the answer or if you just want to try your luck, then head over to Spotify to take part in the poll. Last week, we asked which of these sports, soccer, ice hockey, skiing and tennis, are more popular than basketball in Germany. And everyone was a winner because the answer was actually all of them. Yep, the current basketball world champions come from a nation which is more interested in building up a gallop than it is at shooting a hoop. Just let that sink in for a moment. Our feedback address for comments and ideas for future shows is InsideEurope at DW.com. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, why anti-corruption work is war work. Every day we are going to work, every day, uh, every investigation we make, we are asking ourselves whether it will help us to win, to win the war, whether it will help us to, to get more money to the front line, to the soldiers. How the Netherlands keeps storm surges at bay and what Seville must do to proof itself against the summer heat. All that plus a trip to Italy's annual insolvency festival. Yep, you heard that right. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. As President Zelensky was in the UN calling for unity this week, back home in Ukraine, another war was underway, the ongoing battle against corruption. A spate of high-profile sackings this week demonstrated that the president, who came to power on an anti-corruption platform, is determined to show that he still takes the issue very seriously and that there will be no place for graft in Ukraine's wartime economy. To understand more about the context of this latest anti-corruption crackdown, I spoke to Tatyana Shevchuk, Head of International Relations for Kyiv's Anti-Corruption Action Centre, NGO. 
I will even start with 2014 very quickly, because in 2014, Ukrainians came out to the streets to protest against corrupt pro-Russian government of President Yanukovych. After that, they were having very high demand for anti-corruption reforms. A lot has happened since then, but people felt dissatisfied with this post-revolution government, how they delivered on anti-corruption, because mostly the people in government were still uh, representatives of old elites. And the demand was for like new faces, for changes. And President Zelensky in 2019 campaigned as a new face, as a person capable of changing the system, delivering the anti-corruption reforms. And uh, he won the elections with uh, huge votes. He managed to secure one-party coalition in the parliament. And then his struggle with corruption began. Like his first months in presidency were quite successful, but then all these nuances started to came up, and this anti-corruption effort slowed down. And uh, with the full-scale Russian invasion, we had this reignited demand of the people to fight corruption. So. Now he has to fulfill this promise. Right. And that was evident in an incredibly dramatic way this week with a series of high profile sackings within the Defence Ministry itself, following a couple of weeks earlier, the replacement of the Defence Minister. Perhaps you could talk to me a little bit about what's been going on within the Defence Ministry. We should understand that right now the Minister of Defence is like one of the most important ministries in the cabinet because it's a, frankly speaking, the Ministry of War and uh, the ministry that is tasked with winning the war. Currently, the Minister of Defence is the biggest budget spender. They effectively manage half of Ukrainian budget and it's a very big ministry. So lots of happening there. And uh, we should understand that uh, into the war, Minister didn't came as a fully transparent and effective institution. It had a lot of inherent problems. And um, in the first year of the full-scale invasion, it was no time to change something dramatically within the ministry. But uh, when their front line was more stable, when their uh, entire situation in the country stabilized, then the people start seeing lots of problems within the ministry. Some scandals uh, popped up with attempts to procure, for instance, food under the inflated prices, or uh, there was recent, the most recent scandal was with the procurement of personal gear of low-level quality. And the problem of the previous minister was that he didn't step up. Instead, he tried to cover up the situation and calm down the public. Obviously, he was not successful. That's why the idea of President Zelensky was to change the management of the ministry to get rid of this inherited problem with new management style, fresh new start. And of course, uh, get uh, for, at least for the public, get rid of this uh, bad reputation of previous uh, corruption scandals, like give a, a fresh start uh, to galvanize the anti-corruption effort within the ministry. And this is, of course, incredibly important, um, both internally at a time when Ukrainians are literally laying down their lives for their country, but also 
externally at a time when Ukraine is very much reliant on the financial and, and, and other forms of support from the international community. Zelensky's address to the UN was a bit of a departure from his normal format. It was in English, which is perhaps an indication of the importance of international support at this stage in the war. How damaging is corruption to international support? And do you think that enough now is being done to combat it? Uh, before going into uh, analyzing the like external influence of corruption, I would just briefly stop uh, that it's also very important for internal audience of like for people of Ukraine, because corruption is something that erodes the trust in the government and uh, damages the unity that the nation has. Coming up to external thing, I, I think it's of course it's important because uh, there is narrative or prevailing narrative that Russia uses that Ukraine is not worth helping because it's a corrupt state and it's failed anyway. We try to prove everyone that we are worth fighting for. But of course this something like you know stays uh, stays there and uh, probably a lot of taxpayers of the light countries would ask themselves should we send money to Ukraine, should we send assistance to Ukraine when it will be misappropriated anyway. So this is very important for Ukraine, like prove that we are diligent partner and each penny our allies spend on us, they are spent for the good. And in terms of the measures that you and your organization are calling for to ensure that both Ukrainians themselves and Ukraine's international supporters can have confidence that corruption is being properly dealt with, what measures are you calling for? First of all, to assure credibility into this expenditure of Ukrainian funding, we say that reconstruction or recovery funds can go together with a kind of conditionalities for the reforms or for the anti-corruption measures. Another step we are pushing for is comprehensive judicial reform to get rid of corruption and ineffectiveness out of the judiciary so we can assure foreign investors that investments to Ukraine are properly secured here. Finally, Tetiana, I wondered if I could end with a, a slightly more personal question, and, and that is just that the world has been amazed and impressed by the, the patriotism of Ukrainians since Russia's invasion. Now, your war work has been anti-corruption investigations, and I, I wondered how you view that work within the context of the national narrative right now. Yes, indeed. Uh, every day we are going to work every day, uh, every investigation we make, we are asking ourselves whether it will help us to win, to win the war. Whether some, like, you know, procurement contract with, uh, with some signs of corruption we stop, whether it will help us to, to get more money to the front line, to the soldiers. And uh, it gives us their sense of importance, what we do. Uh, of course, there is nothing more important than our soldiers do on the front lines, but we are trying to help them in any way we can. Tatiana Shevchuk is Head of International Relations for the Kyiv-based NGO Anti-Corruption Action Centre. To the Netherlands now, the lowest of Europe's low countries, where around one third of all land is below sea level. Because of this unusual topography, the Dutch have long learnt to live with water, and that expertise is coming in handy as the world continues to face rising sea levels due to climate change. 
That's why, last weekend, foreign dignitaries joined Dutch residents in flocking to see the annual closure of the Maaslandkuching, the world's largest storm surge barrier. Fernand van Tetz has more. Usually this waterway sees 300 ships pass every day on their way to the port of Rotterdam. But last Saturday it was empty. Instead, hundreds of people climbed up a small hill facing the world's largest storm surge barrier. It's the Maasland Kering's annual testing day. Once closed, the barrier protects one and a half million people living in and around the city of Rotterdam. Normally we would close at three metres plus, expected to be at Rotterdam, uh, but it can close until four or five metres plus, uh, and even a little higher, maybe uh, a little bit of water will overflow, but uh, until five metres plus it will uh, withstand for sure. Real? For real, we have closed now twice in um, 25 years. We expect to be closing more often in the future, of course, but uh, till so far, just two times. Mark Valraven is a storm surge barrier advisor at Rijkswaterstaat, the government agency responsible for the barrier and the country's other water defences. Originally, this uh, barrier has been designed for a lifetime of 100 years. Uh, and already in the design uh, we encountered about 50 centimeters of sea level rise so it's already in the design Uh, but of course we all can't look that specifically into the future so we expect somewhere between 2060 2090 uh, we have to make alterations perhaps possibly according to the un sea levels are currently rising more than twice as fast as in the 20th century We sometimes face challenges regarding maintenance, so with sea level rise uh, or changes in storm patterns, we sometimes have to stop our maintenance a little earlier, so we're already discovering how to deal with that. Uh, And don't forget, when we do maintenance on these kind of structures, we can always, in between, improve them as well. But sea level rise is not going that fast that we already have uh, sorrows for these kind of structures as well. There's no, no urgency, real urgency at the moment for that. We have to take it seriously, to be honest, but uh, no reason to be worried now, not at the moment. Two white steel gates, both as tall as the Eiffel Tower, float across the water to meet in the middle and sink to the bottom. It's hard to get sound of the gates closing. The ball joints weigh 680 tonnes each, but they're pretty silent. The barrier is one of the six delta works which were built after massive flooding hit the country in 1953. Almost a quarter of the Netherlands is located below sea level. Madeleine has come to watch with her daughter. Just look at the current over there. You can see the barrier sinking and the current that it creates. I think it's an amazing piece of technology. Just the ball joint, when you understand how big it is, how much force it carries, it's fantastic. Most of the onlookers say they feel safe knowing that the barrier is there. We got used to the idea that we'll always think of something. Well, if we can think of something like this, then we can also deal with another half metre or an extra one and a half metres, right? Local entrepreneurs also see innovation as the way to deal with rising sea levels. Winke van Wingerde, and we're here by the floating farm. Minka van Wingerde is the co-founder of Floating Farm, the first of its kind in the world. Forty cows are kept on this large barge in the port of Rotterdam. 
Most are lazily chewing their feed. A couple saunter down the bridge towards a small patch of grass on land to graze. The milk they produce is processed below deck. An on-site shop sells milk, yogurt and cheese. Hurricane Sandy 2012. Hurricane Sandy was the reason we started. Back then, we saw that after two days, there was no more fresh food available because the provision of food in a city relies heavily on logistics. And if something floods, there are no more logistics. So we had the idea that if you build in a climate-adaptive way, meaning you move up and down with the tide on the water, you're less reliant on logistics. Large cities are often in deltas, which have to deal with high or low tides. And this is a solution which allows you to produce food no matter what the water level is. The techniques learned here are spreading. There's been interest in floating farms as far afield as Bangladesh, Singapore and Dubai. As sea levels continue to rise across the world, the Dutch are hoping to show others how to adapt rather than fight the rising tide. This is Fernand Van Tetz, DW, at the Maasland Barrier. From stormproofing the Netherlands to heatproofing Seville. At the end of another record-breaking summer, it's time to think about preparing for the next one. With its heady blend of Islamic, Gothic and Renaissance architecture and its streets lined with orange trees, the Andalusian capital is a magnet for tourists. It's also one of Europe's hottest cities and as climate breakdown continues, the thermostat is set to rise still further. Lena Topler has been investigating how the city is coping with the heat. Tomorrow, the temperature is supposed to drop by a few degrees. We've just had a two-week-long heat wave. It's supposed to go down a bit, right? Yes, at night it won't be more than 27, 28 degrees. Mercedes and Cora Inma work in a small corner shop selling fruit and veggies in Seville. With temperatures that can get as high as 43 degrees Celsius in summer, the heat determines people's daily routines. I handled the heat really badly. My air conditioner broke down because it was on non-stop. The kids were getting hysterical. I just kept them in the bathtub all day. Close enough to the Sahara to be under meteorological influence of the desert, Seville has always been a place of high temperatures. In busy shopping areas, awnings provide shade. But there are no public warnings about the heat or measures to alleviate it, like water fountains. In the remote borough of Amate, 91-year-old Anna sits with a group of friends in the shade. This year was the absolute limit. I've never experienced heat like this. You can feel it affecting your health. You're weaker. Especially in my case, I suffer a bit from anemia. The number of days with peak temperatures has doubled in comparison to the 90s. Heat waves are longer and more frequent, with fewer nights under 23 degrees Celsius, according to Prometeo. This organization was founded two years ago with the aim of collecting comprehensive data on heat waves in cities and to raise awareness about their impact on public health. 
But Prometheo spokesperson Jose Maria Olaya says it's not easy changing attitudes to the heat. When we think of summer, we think of good weather. But the extreme heat wave back in 2003 led to a lot of studies. 70,000 people died then. That's Europe-wide, so it may not sound like much. But it ended the association that summer has with good weather. Social anthropologist Luis Beraquero agrees. He works for Greenpeace and has studied the impact of heat waves on society. He speaks about a trivialization of heat and often tries to fight it, for instance in his own family. I said, look mum, I'll show you the data of the last 10 years and how the average temperature has risen compared to when you were a child. How there are now more peak days. You're like the frog in the pot with the temperature rising so slowly that you don't realise it's steadily killing you. Many suffer from high temperatures, Beraquero says, but they don't relate it to climate change and they don't complain that the city council isn't doing enough to mitigate it. For us, it's clear that it can't be resolved by an individual or family strategy. There has to be a network of public places that offer citizens the possibility to cool down. It's what I call the right to feel chilly. As Greenpeace coordinator for Andalusia, Luis has a good overview of where heat mitigation in the city is failing. The public libraries are only open in the morning. They could have a social cultural program for everybody who stays in the city during the heat waves. And there's no network of spaces for the heat to escape. But it needs to be created, either by using infrastructure that already exists or by building a new one. In Barcelona, they do have such plans. After eight years of socialist rule, Civil City Hall is now in the hands of the Conservative People's Party. Juan de la Rosa is now in charge of urban planning. To the question what he believes his voters consider the most pressing issues in the city, he says... Sin duda, limpieza. Without a doubt, cleanliness and security. But he agrees it's necessary to take the heat more seriously. There's no doubt that we are confronted with climate change and that we have to take measures against it. For example, planting more trees and creating a green belt around the city, building pavements better suited to higher temperatures, more water features in public spaces and improving insulation for buildings. Ricardo Librero is a member of Save Your Trees. For the past eight years, the group has pressured the city to plant more trees and improve their maintenance, with only some success. Librero hopes the new administration will be more effective than the last. It may sound illogical, but the conservative government seems to be more efficient. Though it may not be out of a dedication to tackling climate change, but more with the purpose of making the city aesthetically more attractive. Many locals believe that it's the ongoing drought and lack of rainfall that prevents Seville from being a greener city. But with his professional experience as a landscape designer, Ricardo argues that with the right methods and water management, Seville could be filled with green roofs and vertical gardens.
He says that the city administration has missed the chance to use local knowledge to develop a vision of what they want the city to look like. Traditional measures to mitigate the heat were abandoned over time. The houses were white, the ceilings were high, people had natural fiber curtains and the hot air would rise. Now these houses are split into two stories, so you have the heat at the height of your head. And additionally, air conditioners release clouds of heat as well. Most squares, which until not long ago had natural soil, are today sealed with bricks or concrete. Look at this square, which has just been revamped. Given the ongoing climate crisis, how can you cover a recreational area with black soil, which heats up to 70 degrees? Nobody can use it until 10 in the evening. In Seville, next summer might come faster than the efforts to mitigate its consequences. But it's already clear to many locals that air conditioners won't be enough to get them through another summer. Lena Topler, DW, Seville. We're off to a debt festival next, so do stay tuned. You never know, you might be the richer for it. Forget Burning Man or Coachella, Europe has found the definitive festival for our age. It's called Insolvence Fest and it is exactly as the name suggests, a festival of insolvency and debt, now, by the way, in its 12th edition. The venue is the historic Italian university city of Bologna and the place is buzzing with ideas and defiance as festival goers come together to workshop their way through everything from debt management to mafia corruption. Amongst them, our correspondent, Danny Mitzman. Normally in mid-September I visit slow food festivals, but this year I thought I'd give myself a real treat with a festival dedicated to insolvency. <coughs> with guest speakers including lawyers, judges, professors, economists, authors and investigative journalists, Insolvence Fest offers in-depth exploration and analysis of Italy's financial woes. My name is Massimo Ferro. I'm a president of chambers, uh, civil chambers in the Court of Cassation in, in Italy, and I was a judge in Bologna for 20 years. And as the director of Insolvence Fest, I couldn't resist asking Massimo Ferro why he thought a festival dedicated to debt and financial crisis would be a good idea. Yes, it's very strange. <laughs> it's a provocation under a, a point of view. is a sort of sacrilege. Precisely, because when you think of festivals, you think celebration, whereas this festival is anything but. The programme features discussions about subjects ranging from the mafia and the criminal economy to social inequality and inflation, from labour law and workers' rights to poverty, usury and even femicide. No, there's not an idea of uh, celebration, there's an idea of uh, showing deep ideas that explain 
outside our domains, which is the engine that pushes on the conflict. So there's not a celebration, but there's a public discussion and an autocritical proposal of discussion itself. And having been intrigued by the name myself, I have to admit calling it a festival was a shrewd idea. I think it's a good choice of a word because it could attract more people because it's a festival, so it's something that is more interesting for all the people. That's 20-year-old Marta, a student of political science and one of numerous young faces in the audience. I came here because my friend sent me the link of this festival and while I was reading uh, the program, I um, thought that was very interesting also because uh, today we talked about mafia and I'm Sicilian so I thought it would be nice to know more about what is going on in my country. And then there are also other uh, meetings, uh, also about uh, work and how important it is and how things are going in Italy. So um, since I'm 20 years old and I'm still not working but studying, I thought it would be an opportunity to know more about it while I'm still studying and then I will be part of this world too when With a specific focus this year on debt and the future, it's pretty inspiring to meet the likes of Marta and 21-year-old Antonio. A law student here at the University of Bologna, Antonio tells me why he's come. As a student, I feel responsible for my cultural education beyond attending university. Coming to hear great professors and magistrates talk is a very useful opportunity for me as a student to understand the reality around me. 19-year-old Remy thinks one of Italy's most urgent problems to tackle is tax evasion. In my opinion, in terms of taxes, Italy is a country which makes very little in tax revenue because it has such a massive black economy. Lots of people work cash in hand and don't declare their income. Compared to other countries like France and Germany, this situation is much worse in Italy. Massimo Ferro agrees that tax evasion is one of Italy's three biggest economic problems. The other two, he says, are organized crime rackets and corruption. And we think that these three factors are important to understand Italian reality and to explain also the economic crisis, because there's a, a sort of contradiction about the data. We have data of a certain level, but the real size of the richness is different. We can only observe this kind of economy, but we have no data, official data of it. An important aspect they're discussing is how adept criminal rackets have become at cleaning dirty money elsewhere. Italian capital formed by mafia are laundered continuously, not only in Italy, but in the south of Italy, in north of Italy, in Germany, in Netherlands, in Great Britain. But uh, those countries probably are not used to recognize this kind of phenomenon that exists, are very large and diffuse. Despite the gloomy, often terrifying themes being discussed, there's plenty of optimism. 
And I'm also positive that I could change things if I'm brave enough and, you know, smart enough. And we are indebted to Danny Mitzman for that report. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Ziad Abu Sleiman and Lars Schlemmer. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. The Guardian's European culture editor will be with us next week. To make sure you don't miss that, subscribe to our podcast. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. Thank you.